Well, as Tobani said, we're starting a new series uh, going through the book of Galatians. So we're going to start uh, this evening just going through the first five verses and a little bit of an introduction. So I'm going to read Galatians 1, verse 1 to 5, pray, and then uh, we'll get stuck in. Galatians 1, verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for this book that has had great significance across the ages of the church. And I pray, Lord, that as we as Harbor City begin to dive into the book of Galatians, that you would speak to us through it, you would impact us, you would move us towards the beauty of your gospel. And, uh, and I pray, Lord, that uh, we would be transformed by how good and how great you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going through Galatians, and uh, Galatians is an interesting book. It's a book that's uh, played a significant part in church history, uh, especially Protestant church history. A guy called Martin Luther, uh, you may have heard of him. He's the guy who's famous for the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. He called Galatians, he said, Galatians is like my wife. It is my Kati Van Bora. I don't know what she thought about that illustration, but um, Galatians was to him his most treasured book from the scriptures. Uh, some people have said it is the reading of Galatians that sparked Martin Luther's understanding of uh, justification by faith and began to stir the, the Reformation 500 years ago. Um, then move a couple hundred years on from that, you get a guy called John Wesley. Some of you may have heard of him. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement. John Wesley comes to faith in Christ while sitting in a home while someone was reading the introduction of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. So, Galatians, so Martin Luther loves Galatians, writes a book on it. John Wesley hears the commentary on Galatians and justification by faith. It's, the account goes that John Wesley says his heart was strangely warmed while hearing about this was changed and, uh, and the rest is history. Galatians is a powerful book. It's short, it's punchy. In some ways, it's quite difficult. When you read through it, if you read through it at one time, you can feel like Paul's a little bit grumpy at times. Uh, I don't know if you notice that. He uses like quite strong words. In, in chapter one, he's calling people accursed. Let them be accursed if they get this wrong. He moves on in chapter three, and basically he says, you foolish Galatians, or as one translation puts it, you idiots. I mean, how like strong kind of terms is that. Uh, and in another point, he's telling people to emasculate themselves. I mean, he's using extremely strong language in the book of Galatians. And uh, he's using it for a reason. He's fighting for something. He's uh, arguing for something that he believes is absolutely critical in the faith. 
And so as we read Galatians, sometimes it is a little bit difficult. Sometimes you have to fuss through the strength of the language and at the same time get the heart of Paul who is fighting for the church to be gripped by the gospel. Galatians is essentially about the gospel. It is Paul's defense of the gospel. It is Paul's argument for the gospel. It is Paul calling a people not to get sidetracked by other things, but to remain true to the gospel. Uh, And we'll look a little bit just now at what the gospel is. But this is a big deal for Paul. It's a big deal for him. He wants the church to remain faithful to the gospel. And you get that just by the sheer strength of the language that he uses. Uh, It is a book about legalism. It is a book beyond legalism. It is a book about, I guess, what I would call, because I don't really know the word, excuse my English, but like culturism, where you've got Judaizers believing their culture is superior to the Gentiles, trying to make the Gentiles become Jewish in order to believe. It is a book about the cross of Christ. We'll see Paul starts with the cross and he ends with the cross. And in between, he talks about the cross of Christ being absolutely central to our faith. It is a book that reminds us that Christ alone is the one sufficient for our faith and our salvation. So, why are we going through the book of Galatians um, at this time? And uh, so for two reasons. Number one, to ground ourselves in the gospel, in its importance and its centrality in the faith. And um, I, I understand that transitions can be difficult. We are in a transition phase. Um, as I'm sure you are aware, especially if you were here last week, we're in a transition phase. Sometimes transitions can be difficult. Sometimes we can feel insecure. There's change. So relationships are changing. Some people will move on. Some new people will come. Transitions can be difficult spaces. And as transitions are difficult, what brings us together? What keeps us together? What unites us as a community of God? What unites us is the gospel. And so we want to go through Galatians in one part to ground us as a community in the gospel, to remind us that it is the the gospel is the reason that we are here, that we are seated here, that we are in faith with Christ. Galatians is a message that helps ground us in the gospel, that helps orientate us around the death and the resurrection of of Christ. Galatians reminds us of the sufficiency of Christ's work, that what he did is sufficient, is enough, that we do not need to add anything else to it, that what Jesus did is completely enough. A guy called Guy Waters says this, in Galatians, the beauty, the glory, and the sufficiency of Christ as Savior and Lord are on full display. And it is this sufficiency that Paul wants the Galatian Christians to rest in. It is, and it is the hope 
that we as a community would do the same, that we would be able to see the beauty, the glory, the sufficiency of Christ and his work, and as a community be able to rest in that, that we would be grounded in the gospel. Um, I, Tim Keller highlights this a lot, but essentially he highlights this idea, um, which has become really common, but is this, is that, we do not do good works to be saved, but we are saved to do good works. That in the gospel, we find that there is nothing that we can do in order to be saved. Christ has done it all. Our identity is grounded in the gospel, in the sufficiency of Christ's work. But from that space, we begin to outwork the gospel, we begin to outwork, live out, do good works. We want to be a community that has our identity grounded in the gospel, in the work of Christ, in what he has done, um, and not in anything that we do, not in anything we think is great about Harbor City, not all the different things that we may love about this kind of space, all the things we don't love about this kind of space, but grounded in the gospel and the work of Jesus. But the second reason why I want to do Galatians is because I think Galatians reminds us of the acultural nature of the gospel. That the gospel comes as a message, not as a culture. What I mean by that is a guy called Andrew Wilson, Wilson helped me with this. I was uh, listening to his kind of overview of Galatians, and he, and he says this. He says, one of the fascinating things about Christianity, which is different from every other religion, is that if you go anywhere in the world, if you had to go into Japan, if you had to go into Europe, if you had to go into the Middle East, if you went into America, or if you went to, into Africa, and you found Islamic people there, they would look the same. They dress the same when they go to church. They go to church at exactly the same time, or church to mosque. They go to, it's because Islam comes not just as a religion, it comes as a culture. But as you do that, with Christianity, you realize Christians all around the world look different. So whether you're going to Nigerian Anglicans or Brazilian Pentecostals or churches here in South Africa or um, you know, Anglican churches in Britain or great big mega Baptist churches in the US, you'd as you go to different spaces, you see that Christians dress differently, look differently, speak differently, live in some ways slightly differently because Christianity at its core is the proclamation of an event, not a culture in which we buy into in, in one sense. Andrew Wilson also says, which is really profound, is that if you look at every other religion, is that it is always strongest at its core. So Islam is strongest in the Middle East. Buddhism is strongest in the Far East. Mormonism is strongest in Utah. But you can't say that about Christianity. Christianity is not strongest in Israel. It's not even strongest in Europe where it moved to quite fast. And even now, today, it's no longer strongest in America. The global south is now the hub of Christianity. What's interesting about that, why does that happen? 
And as Wilson, Andrew Wilson says, he says that Galatians is the answer to those questions. Why do Christians look so differently? Why is the hub of Christianity move? And part of that reason is because Christianity at its core is the proclamation of the event of Jesus and what that means for our lives. It is not the export of a culture. Now, I think that's quite important for us here in South Africa because we have a complicated history. We have a complicated history in the fact that Christianity, for the most part, not all of it, came on the back of colonialism, which means there is a whole lot of difficult things that we have to fuss through when we think about the gospel, when we think about Jesus. There's a whole lot of feelings, there's a whole lot of legacy stuff that has come from colonialism that has been imported into what we think about Christianity rather than thinking about Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. I don't know about you, but I think like our innate tendency so often is to judge people on how they look and how they act. Christians are infamous for doing that. So we do things like you see someone walking with tattoos. No offense if anyone's got tattoos here. Bless you. You're welcome. But, <laughs> but sometimes, you know, you... Some people have a particular look, and you can see, like, everyone in church, like, hmm, interesting. What are they doing here? You know, can they accept Jesus? We, we have this tendency so often based on style, based on things like tattoos, on dress codes, on the way people act, based on cultural elements to judge people on whether they are in or out, what Galatians is going to teach us is that you just can't do that. You just can't do that. We can't make those kind of judgments about whether people are in or out in the kingdom. In America, you see it play out with Republican and Democrat politics. You know, like, if you're a Republican, you think, oh, how can you be a Democrat and be a Christian? In fact... There's a story that went around during Trump's campaign where a Democrat Christian working in a Christian organization got retrenched from their job for being Democrat. It reinforces this fact that if you want to be a Christian, you can't just accept Jesus. You also need to adhere to our way of life. Galatians guards us against that error. It reminds us, I think, here in South Africa, if that we want to be a diverse church that is going to reach a diverse nation, we have to remember what the gospel is. We have to come back to the core of what it is. So what is the gospel? That is essentially, I think, the question that I want to answer from Galatians 1. Paul, as he launches into the book of Galatians, what he does is he gives us the gospel in a nutshell. He starts off with the gospel, and he's going to start off with the gospel because for the, almost all of the rest of the book, he's going to defend it. He's going to defend the gospel, and he starts off in the first five verses giving us the gospel in a nutshell. 
And, uh, and that's what we want to look at. So what is the gospel? Well, if we had to look at verse 3 to 5, I think it would give us a really good summary of the gospel. As Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I want to take four points from from these five verses that I think will help us understand the gospel. The four points will be the gospel problem, the gospel event, the gospel result, and what I call the gospel doxology. And uh, so let's start with the gospel problem. Not that there is a problem in the gospel, but there is a problem that the gospel solves, that the gospel solves. The gospel means good news. That's what the term gospel means. It means good news. And that good news comes because it solves a problem for us. What is that problem is, according to verse uh, 4, the problem is that we need to be rescued. We need to be rescued from our sin and, as Paul says, this present evil age. A guy called Jeremy Treat, I was hearing him tell the story. He says this, he says he was at a party with a, a kid's party with his kids. There were lots of people there. They were all around a pool. All of a sudden, a three-year-old falls in the pool and just begins sinking. And he says at that moment, you don't go, hey, three-year-old, let me tell you how to swim. You cup your hands, you do this, you know, like... You don't try and teach the three-year-old how to swim while they are drowning. You don't try and give them lessons. You don't give them a program. You don't say, hey, you know what? If you come to swimming lessons next week, you're not going to face this problem. We're going to help you not face this problem anymore. What, as he tells the story, he just jumped in, shoes, clothes, everything and all, because the three-year-old had just sunk to the bottom and needed to be rescued. The gospel is not an instruction manual on how to swim. It is not a teaching on how to get better at swimming. It is a rescue mission. When we think about the gospel, it is a rescue mission. It is not an instruction manual for life. It is not a teaching manual, per se, on how to get to God. It is God's rescue mission to save us in our own helpless state from sin, death, from this present evil age. The gospel is a rescue mission. Often when we think about Christianity, I don't know if you guys have thought about this, but we can think about Christianity as the teachings of Jesus. We think about the miracles. We think about the Sermon on the Mount. We can think about the parables. We can think about how some of those things help us live a good life. But what Paul is doing right at the beginning of Galatians is he's not highlighting any of those. In fact, throughout the whole of Galatians, never once is Paul going to defend the miracles of Jesus. Never once is he going to defend the preaching of Jesus. Never once is he going to defend the, the 
parables or the Sermon on the Mount or highlight them as these great things that Galatians, you need to come back to, what is he going to do? He's going to highlight the work of Jesus in his death and resurrection and how that rescues us from our sin. We don't really like the word sin. I don't like the word sin. I don't like it if anyone's told me that I sin. I don't know about you guys. Difficult, uncomfortable conversations. Uh, but we don't really like the word sin. You know, it sounds often archaic. It also sounds presumptuous. How can someone tell me I am a sinner? How can someone tell me I need rescuing? But Paul starts off his letter with that strength. He starts off that letter telling the Galatians, as he's going to tell them over and over again, that there is nothing that you and I can do. There is no amount of good works that can earn a right relationship with God. We are stuck, unable to do that in our own strength. We need rescuing. All of us, at some point or another, um, and probably quite regularly, if you're anything like me, have created idols in which we have put other things in our lives as more important than Jesus. We have robbed glory from him. We have made ourselves bigger. We have made ourselves more important than the God of the universe. And every time we do that, we sin. We are stuck in a present evil age. As John Stott talks about, the present evil age is the age in which the, we are stuck in the dominion and the power of sin, in which Satan, in one sense, is having his way. But Christ is going to rescue us. He rescues us. And how does he rescue us? He rescues us in point two, through the gospel event, which is the death and resurrection of Christ, the most important event in all of the scriptures, that Christ died and rose again. Um, I don't know if any of you have this, but I don't know if anyone's got a cross tattooed on themselves or maybe a cross around their neck or a cross up on their wall at home or somewhere or I mean, there's a big one right there. But if you do, I don't know if you've ever stopped to think how weird that is at some point. How weird it is that behind us, we have a Roman method of torture. A Roman death penalty method stuck up on a wall behind us. Or in some way, some of us may have it tattooed on us. Or we might wear it on a chain every day. In some sense, it's really weird. And yet, for 2,000 years, it is the thing that Christians over and over and over in churches all over the world have put up on walls, as Christians have put up in their homes, as Christians have worn on their necks, they've worn this method of Roman torture, of Roman death penalty. Why? Because as Christians, we have believed that the cross of Christ is absolutely central to everything that we believe. It is central to 
the Christian life. That Jesus dying, Jesus' death on the cross, as we see in verse 1, his resurrection is what brings us to Christ. That the cross is not just a great example of love. It is that. It's not just a great example of love. It's not even just a great example of a human willing to give up something for their cause. The cross is the sacrifice of the Son of God that is central to the rescuing of his people. That when we think of the cross, we think of God coming down to earth to pay the price for your and my sin. The cross is the central element. I don't know if you've ever wondered why Paul says the cross is offensive. Uh, I don't know if you've ever wondered about that. I've wondered why Paul calls the cross offensive. Why is the cross so offensive? Why is this, is it offensive because it's a horrible way to die? And that somehow we as Christians look upon that and think the cross is this offensive act. But what we see, even through Galatians, is that the cross is offensive because it deals with our human pride. It deals with our human ability. What the cross does is it puts every person on the same playing field. Someone said this, which uh, I found at Life Group on Tuesday, which I had to really grapple with myself and thought, yo, that is really hectic. But at Life Group on Tuesday, someone mentioned, you know, imagine putting Mother Teresa and Hitler in the same room and thinking, are their works going to make them better with Jesus? Who is better by what they've done? And you go, of course, Mother Teresa's better what they've done. But what the cross, the reason why the cross is so often so offensive is the cross says that no one is better except by receiving Jesus. That it is only by our reception of Jesus, by faith, by belief that only through his work can any of us receive salvation. That we understand. And that's why it's offensive. I, I get offended by that at times. But Paul is going to mention the cross is absolutely central to our faith. We see it right here in the start. As you go into Galatians 2, he's going to talk about being crucified with Christ. I no longer live. His identity is found in the cross. And then Paul is going to end off the book of Galatians. As you get right to the end of chapter 6, he ends off the book of Galatians talking about the cross of Christ, saying, I boast only in the cross talks about being rescued because of the cross. He talks about living because of the cross and ultimately finding all of his hope, strength, identity in the cross. The cross is central to our faith. I'll be quicker with the next two points. But the gospel result, Paul opens his letter as he opens most of his letters by saying grace and peace. It's Paul's standard greeting. And when you read the, the 
most of the commentators, what do they say about this greeting, grace and peace? They say that Paul, right at the beginning of each letter, is greeting them with the gospel. He's greeting them with the gospel. Not only does he greet them with the gospel by saying grace and peace to you through our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins and to rescue us, not only is he greeting us with that whole, he's greeting us with the, the result of the gospel, that what comes through the death and resurrection is grace from God, that we get treated in a way that we don't deserve, that God's grace shines onto our lives that we people who do not deserve God's favor, who do not deserve the benefits of God on our life, who do not deserve reconciliation with him, shines upon his favor upon our lives through grace, an undeserved act towards us. And peace, that the gospel not only brings God's grace into our lives, but it brings God's peace, it brings God's order, the shalom of God, the idea of nothing broken, nothing missing, the idea that God brings peace to us between God and man, that God is reconciling us to himself and to each other through the gospel, that the result of the gospel is the forgiveness of our sins, is being rescued through God's grace and his peace. Some of us this afternoon need God's grace in our lives. We need God's grace. We're struggling with guilt. We're struggling with things that we can't put away, an anxiety about lives, our lives and our actions and the things that we have done that we cannot seem to shake off. The gospel brings God's grace, a forgiveness that cannot be earned. We need God's peace, the quietening of the storms, the reconciliation between us and God and us and each other. And then the final point is a gospel doxology. How does Paul end this little gospel nugget? He ends it by saying this. He says, To whom be glory for... According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What is Paul essentially saying here? Is he saying this, that when Christ does all the work, all the glory goes to him. When God does all the work, to him belongs all the glory. And in here you see Christ is the one who takes the initiative. He is the one who, say, who gives himself as the sacrifice for our sins. And he gives himself according to the will of our God and Father. That all the gospel is God's idea. It is God's plan. Jesus dying for our sins, he does of his initiative. Our forgiveness not comes because we have earned it. It comes because Christ has achieved it for us. He has done it of his initiative through the Father's will in his power to his glory. The ultimate result of the gospel life 
is the gospel doxology, is the idea that people give all the glory to God. There's this account that Luther writes about talking with one of the Catholic theologians in the day, and he was talking with the Catholic theologians about justification by faith, essentially talking about the gospel to one of the the Catholic theologians. And at some point, this Catholic guy, I can't remember his name, but Luther himself was Catholic at that point, you know, says, as he's unpacking it, the guy stops him and he says, Luther, I agree with you. And the reason why I agree with you is because God absolutely deserves all the glory. There is no way that we deserve any of it. What brought the lights on on for this guy was as Luther was arguing, he goes, I get it, I get it. God has done it all. And because he's done it all, he deserves all of the praise. What makes the gospel offensive but powerful, what makes it unique is that it is God's initiative reaching out into man's problem, accomplishing it by his effort for his glory. As we go through the book of Galatians, what my hope is, is that we will be grounded in the gospel, that the gospel will become front and center of our faith of our thinking, that we will not be trying to add to it works. We will not be trying to add to it our own efforts. We won't be trying to add to it even our own cultural things, but that we will look at the beauty of Jesus, at his glory, at what he has accomplished, and that we will begin to believe, have faith, and worship for what he has done. Eugene, can I ask you to come up quickly? Can we stand? Eugene's got a song for us to go out on around this idea But the gospel calls us, it calls you and I to give up our own strength, to give up our own effort, to give up our own self-righteousness, to lay it down before Jesus, to put our faith in him. And as we do that, his grace, his peace floods our hearts, that as Wesley listening to the gospel being unpacked in the commentary of Galatians, our heart was strangely warm. Lord, I pray for us this afternoon. Some of us, maybe for the first time, need to turn and look upon the cross. Some of us maybe need to turn and remember the cross. Some of us maybe need to give up our own efforts, our own trying to be good enough in the hope that one day God will accept us. And we need to turn and look upon you, Jesus, the beauty of what you've done, the majesty of your work, the glorious grace that comes from you.
And as we do that, I pray that you would save us, rescue us, grant peace in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Go ahead, Jim. Every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever